right, good morning. How's everybody? Okay, yeah. Um, so I was standing back here uh, just a few minutes ago, and I don't know what made me think of it, but I was thinking about um, all the diapers uh, in our house. Um, you all did nothing to remind me of the diapers um, other than the fact that we were incredibly blessed um, by you guys months ago. And uh, you'll be happy to know, just as a progress report, we are using those. Um, we, are, we are working our way through. Uh, all the newborns are done, and we are in the ones now. So she is growing and developing, and I was just super thankful, uh, again, for uh, the way that you guys have blessed our uh, family in that way. Um, I don't know why I said that, but just wanted you to know, we are thankful uh, for you guys. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 13. Um, we are in some pretty choppy waters. We started off last week in Mark 13, uh, and I hope you did bring a Bible uh, today. And if you don't have one, um, please get close enough to somebody that you can see uh, the text, um, because you're going to want to see it. Um, because, again, we are in some pretty choppy stuff here. Um, we're talking about stuff that has terrified uh, people for centuries uh, and they've been wondering, what do I do with this passage? Um, how do I apply it to my life and what does it mean for me? Because we're talking about end time kind of things. Um, and so I want to throw out this question. Um, how do you know if you're living in the end times? You ever think about that? H how do you know if you're living in the end times? And then on top of that, are you ready for the end times? Are you ready for that day? Uh, when I was 10 years old, I remember I was mowing my grass out in uh, my front yard, and I'd been going to this little small country Bible church for a little while. My parents would take me, drop me off, or a little church van would come and, and would pick me up and take me to church, and I'd go to Sunday school class. And I remember one time they were talking about heaven and hell. The topic came up, and they were talking about the end times. And for me, I really had zero context for heaven and hell. I had zero context that Jesus was going to come back one day and the whole separation and that kind of stuff. And so to be honest, it kind of freaked me out. And so I remember in my front yard and I was mowing and, and, and I'm wondering, like, what does that mean? Am I a part of that? What's going to happen? What's it going to look like when that when that's going to come? And I remember I was sort of mowing my lawn and my arms were shaking and I started mowing as fast as I could, like the devil was behind me. And I was like, what is going on? Zero context for a conversation like that and for my mind to start swimming around with that stuff. For you and me, right now, we're living in a context where there are wars, there are rumors of wars, there are earthquakes, persecutions that are happening for believers here in our own homeland. There's persecution uh, even on a deeper level physically and spiritually around the world when you step outside of our borders and see that. Uh, it's intense around the world. And so with all that going on, according to what we know about the scriptures, how do we know if we're living through, or if what we're living through is close to the end times, or even if we're in the end times? It's a valid question, is it not? Um, every generation that's gone before us has always thought, like, man, like, we're, is this the end? Are we living through the end? Is this going on? Uh, I wonder if this is going to be, if this sign is going to be, if this war is going to be, if this situation is going to be, is this part of the end? And so let me preface it as I stand on this platform um, as your pastor um, who is supposed to know what I'm talking about when I get up here. I want you to know that I don't know when the end's coming. I'm guessing you don't know when the end's coming either. I want to know. 
But I don't know, and so I just thought you should know as we dive into this topic, I don't know when it's going to happen. But there are people who have lived for years um, and for centuries before us who have always tried to figure this out. Even though Jesus tells us that nobody knows, that not even the angels in heaven knows, not even he knows, whatever that looks like um, to be in uh, deity but humanity, um, He says, I don't even know. Only the Father in heaven is the one who knows. But that doesn't stop people from trying to figure it out and give it a shot and creating entire ministries around the the end times. And because of that, what happens is we have a lot of confusion. We have deception that happens. We have emotional manipulation and spiritual manipulation that happens around the end times. And for whatever reason, uh, maybe it's to gain popularity. Maybe it's to gain fame. For some people, it's to gain uh, dollars and to build their bank accounts. But I do think that there are people that who really, they really believe that I've studied the scriptures enough. And I think that for whatever reason, I have unlocked the code. I've unlocked the mystery that has been a mystery since the beginning of time. I've studied enough where I know when it's going to to come to an end. There's actually a fellow by the name of Edgar C. Wisenant who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Be in 1988. Y'all remember that? Y'all who have a little bit more hair or a little less hair and a little more gray, do y'all remember this book? Do you have the pamphlet somewhere on, on your shelf? Four and a half million copies of this little pamphlet sold. Four and a half. And he gave 300,000 out to pastors in certain communities. Because he wanted people to know the end is coming. It's going to happen in 1988. He believed that Jesus was coming in September of 1988 around a festival called Rosh Hashanah. I'm not sure if I said that right. It was a Jewish festival. And he was so confident that it was going to be happening that he was quoted saying... Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. Yikes. Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. And if there were a king in this country and I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on September 1988. That's a bold statement, is it not? I think that book got adjusted a few times along the way because we're still here. So something was off. Either God didn't know when he was supposed to be coming back. Maybe he got confused on the calendar on the dates. Or maybe we just don't know when that's going to be. Maybe we don't know the time. Maybe we don't really know the date. It's the kind of stuff like this that stands in direct contrast to what Jesus says when he says that nobody knows the time. Not Not even the angels in heaven or even the Son of Man. Only the Father knows the time. But it doesn't change you and me doesn't change generation after generation our desire to want to know when the end is going to be, does it? Again, four and a half million copies of that little pamphlet were sold. And then people keep writing about the end times. Movies keep being produced about things that are going to happen in the end. People keep studying it because we want to know when's it going to happen, what's it going to be like. And I think the larger question that lies underneath that is, am I ready? Are we ready? Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, you've never been here before, you should know that we're in a series in Mark, chapter, in, in Mark, and we've dropped into Mark chapter 13. We're not just cherry-picking things to be talking about. God has led us to this in his word. And so we've been watching Jesus stay connected to these 12 disciples as he's on his way heading to a cross, and he's showing them what it looks like for a life to be connected to him. It's like, there is no life outside of me. 
This is what life is going to look like, and this is how you follow me now, but this is also how you follow me when I'm gone. And so we've come to chapter 13, and we started last week saying that our handles, that we're going to put three handles on this passage, and there's going to be, uh, it's, we're going to start with life won't be easy for the follower of Jesus, and we did that in the first, uh, actually we, did, we stopped at 13 uh, last week, and so um, we're going to kind of hit that middle ground before we get into Jesus coming back next week. Uh, and so we talked about life not being easy for the follower of Jesus, then we're going to talk about Jesus coming back one day, and our job You and I, who are followers of Christ, our job is to stay awake, to stay alert, to be on guard, to not fall asleep at the wheel while we're waiting for his return. And so this morning, we're in this little section of verses 14 through 23 that deal with this thing or this person called the abomination of desolation. And that's a, that's a, anybody heard of the abomination of desolation? As you read through the scriptures, the abomination of desolation, it sounds fun, doesn't it? I, I, I was putting this PowerPoint together this week, and Anderson, my son, he saw this picture, and he's like, what is that, Dad? And I was like, well, that's, uh, we're going to be talking about the abomination of desolation. He's like, what's that? I said, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Uh, I'm glad you're here, and if you're a visitor, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a fancy word for studying the end times that's called eschatology. Um, it's two Greek words that are kind of squeezed together. The first word is eschatos, which means last or in things. And then there's another word, uh, logia, which means, or logia, which means the study of. And so you squeeze those two words together, you get eschatology, and it means the study um, of things that are yet to happen or things that will happen uh, in the end. Okay? And so here's what I want to say as we're jumping into this. In life, there are things that are worth fighting for. There are hills that you're willing to go up and fight on and things that you're willing uh, to die for. And you've got to know which are those hills that you're worth dying on. And I think es- uh, when it comes to eschatology and when it comes to any theology, we need to know, am I willing to die on that particular hill? I want you to know there are a few theological hills that I'm willing to die on. Um, the deity of Christ that... that Jesus is both God and man. I'm willing to die on that theological hill. Um, The physical return of Jesus, that he is coming back one day and he's going to take believers to be with him in eternity because he's called us children of God. I am willing to die on that theological hill. Um, The idea that salvation or the reality that salvation is only through Jesus, that there is no other way. When he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody gets the Father except through me, that I believe that. And that's a theological hill that I am willing to die for. But there are some other hills um, that I may not be willing to die for and defend all the way to the grave. Uh, A hill that I won't die on and a hill that I won't lose relationships on is the details of when Jesus is coming back. We know that he is coming back, right? We know that. Scripture tells us very clearly that he's coming back. But when he is coming back gets very blurry. Um, and to, to even say blurry, I would say blurry at best. But people have been studying eschatology for a really long time. They've been studying for centuries. And all kinds of attention has been given to this study to the extent that churches have split over differences of opinions along the way. Um, there was a time when churches 
who disagreed on end-time eschatology that they wouldn't even talk with one another. The pastors wouldn't talk with each other. The people who attended those churches wouldn't talk with one another because of their difference in opinions on how the thing ends or when exactly when Jesus is coming back. Not, not that they didn't believe that Jesus was coming back. They fought about not knowing or, or disagreeing on when he was coming back. But I would argue that as we're getting into this, um, that uh, all the details, that it's that the goal isn't for us to get all the details exactly right and to put in the right places here. Um, I just don't think that was the focus of the New Testament writers. I don't think it was the focus of Jesus as he's talking with his disciples. And so what I would suggest as we read through this, um, that the real focus was never intended to, to pinpoint the date and time or else God would have given us the date and time. And it would have been extremely clear for us. It wouldn't have been us trying to figure out pieces and put them together. But instead, what we have is we have passages from Daniel and Revelation, a few things in the Gospels, and we have Paul writing a few things in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and, uh, and, and 1 Corinthians 15, and we put those things together and we formulate our end-time theology. And God gives us some of those things, and he gives us those, I think, for one purpose, and the purpose is to let us know that Jesus is indeed going to come back. And we have those details, to, not only to know that he's coming back, but also so that we can be ready when he comes back, not to try to pinpoint what the date or the time is going to be. And so maybe the question that lies behind the question um, uh, uh, th this morning is, am I ready for the end? A am I ready for Jesus to come back? Is my heart and my relationship with Jesus, is it set in such a way that it doesn't matter when it's going to happen? Like it could happen tonight, it could happen 3,000 years from now, but Jesus has my heart so whenever he returns, I'm ready. And, and there are people who are around me who are ready because I took up the call that Jesus gave me in Matthew 28 to be a disciple, but not only to be a disciple, but go out and make disciples. And so I'm ready, but there are other people around me who are going to be ready too. Uh, pastor Billy Graham, uh, the late great Pastor Billy Graham, who I'm sure you are all familiar with, uh, known as America's pastor, is just a phenomenal human being, a phenomenal follower of Jesus. Um, and he did crusades throughout the United States and around the world, actually, um, throughout the 50s and all the way up until the day that he died. Um, and he was famous for always saying, if you were to die tonight, if you were to die tonight, if the world was going to come to an end right now, would you be ready? Would you feel the gravity and the weight of that? If it, if we're tonight, how would that play out? Would you be ready? And so the question this morning is, how do you know if you're in the end times? But again, the larger question is, is are we ready? Because the disciples were asking some of these same questions. We're not alone as we sit here in Ashland, Nebraska in 2023. 2023 or 2000 odd years ago, the same question was being asked of Jesus. And he's given them some instructions in chapter 13. and verse 14, Jesus seems to change gears um, from what we were talking about last week. He's, he's just been talking about how difficult it's going to be for believers as we start getting close to the end. But he tells them that the end's not yet. It's, this is what it's going to look like, but it's not yet. Jesus is like, hey, look, families are going to start turning on each other. 
People are going to start fighting with each other. People are going to hate you because you follow me. You're going to stand before governors and authorities and kings. But don't worry about it because when you need words to speak, I'm going to give you words to speak so you can expect that. And so Jesus, he's been talking about this persecution that's getting ready to come their way. And then you have this kind of like hard stop. And then he switches gears. He tells them that there's going to be this significant event that's going to take place that just kind of interrupts the normal status quo of life. And it's going to be a signal to you that the end is coming. And you need to know that you, when you see that, the end is on your doorstep. There's no longer any waiting for it. It's there. So many scholars, as they read this passage and they've studied this passage and they've connected with other passages, they, they've said this is called the Great Tribulation. And they take that out of verse 19 that says there's going to be such a tribulation or there's going to be so great a tribulation or however maybe your translation says it that points to this. That uh, so, there's going to be such a trauma that's happening in our world that such is, so much so that the world has never seen anything like this before. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that all the hardships and the pain, all the death, all the dying, all the murder, all the rape, all the persecution all the immorality, everything that you've seen and everything that you've experienced and everything that you've heard about, that isn't even close to what's about to come. Now think about that. The destruction and the violence and the things that make you wince right now when you hear about it. The things that make you close your eyes in fear and trembling. The events that you hear on the nightly news the events that you hear maybe from a distance, the stuff that gets pushed to your phone because you've got notifications turned on, the stuff that you don't want to hear about, the suffering that's all around the world. Jesus says there's coming a time when all of that is going to seem like child's play. I can't even get my mind around that. I can't even get my mind around it. Look, look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ, or look, there he is, don't, be, don't, be, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Now we read that, and the obvious word that pops up off the page is verse 14, what we're talking about, the abomination of desolation. It's going to be standing where it ought not be. It's going to be standing in the temple. Now what is that? What is it? If we were, if we were to read in uh, a different scenario, or the same scenario in Matthew's gospel, Matthew mentions Daniel. Here's what he says. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So he, he keys us in that Daniel has talked about this, 
And the location at which this is going to take place is in the holy place. And what they considered the holy place was inside the temple. And whether it's just somewhere inside the temple or if it's in the holy of holies, back where only the priest could go, like that, it's to be debated, but it's somewhere in the temple. And so this isn't the first time that people have heard the phrase abomination of desolation because the prophet Daniel has already talked about it. Now, on a very basic level, abomination, it means something that causes disgust or hatred. Uh, God used the same kind of terminology and words in the Old Testament when he's talking about these things, these activities that he found to be of such offense that it was revolting to him, that it was um, vile for, for him to even have to, as a God, to get his mind on. Now, for that matter, any sin, no matter how small it might be, it's a violation of God's character. But there are some things that he considers to be so vile that it is a direct attack on himself. And I think we can understand that. We can kind of get our minds around that a little bit, even though we're not God. Um, there, are, there are some things that just hit you a little bit differently when you hear it or when you see it. Would you agree? You hear some things, you see some things, and just kind of brush over. But then there are some things just like, oh, that is a gut punch to me. And I don't even know how to process what just happened. Um, when you see a dude hit a dude, you know that's wrong, right? Like, we know that's wrong. Um, but there's something in us when we see that, we're like, oh, that, that, that kind of happens. People get into fights, and, and we process that a little bit differently. But if a dude walks up and he hits your wife, that's different, is it not, Noah? That's different. That, that hits differently. If a dude walks up and, and hits your kid, how does that hit? How does that feel? Right? You're processing through that different. Maybe even if there was something even worse that happened, like that we don't even try, want to try to think about. There is a disgust and a hatred that begins to settle in. Whether we want it to or not, it begins to settle in. And that becomes a hill that maybe you're even worth dying on. Abomination. It's something that causes disgust. It causes hatred. The word desolation, in its very basic sense, it's a, a state of complete emptiness or, or destruction. Uh, Jesus was saying, listen, if you want to know, if you want to know how this is going to happen, this is your sign that you have entered into the end times. When you see the abomination of desolation being where it not, ought not be, when it's standing in the middle of the temple. So Jesus is saying there's going to be a day when someone or something that people detested and utterly brought them to their knees in disgust that it was going to stand in the temple one day and totally desecrate the temple. And when that day comes, verse 14 says, the people who are living in Jerusalem or throughout Judea, they should begin to head to the mountains. It says, don't stick around. Don't grab your phones. Don't grab your cameras and try to capture it on TikTok, right? He's like, don't worry about posting it up for everybody to see. Tuck the phone in your pocket, put the phone away, and you get out of town. You run as fast as you can. You, you, you'll do well if you head to the hills because it's going to be so bad that even women in labor, they're going to loathe being in labor because it's going to slow them down. They're going to loathe the fact that they're nursing a child because it's going to slow them down from being able to run to the hills. Because let's be honest, ladies, a waddle is a little bit slower than a full-out sprint. Is it not? And in those days, 
Jesus is saying, you're not going to want to waddle. You're not going to want to dolly. You're not going to want to take your time. You're going to want to sprint as fast as you can to the hills because of the abomination that is taking place inside of the temple and that will radiate outside of the temple. It's going to be so bad that you're going to want to run to the hills. It's going to be so bad that you'll not even want to go back into the house and grab anything. You'll just need to head out to the caves as fast as you can and get away from what's going down inside of Judea. I don't know if you guys have thought about this before, but there, there, there are certain things that you think, man, like, gosh, if my house were to catch on fire, um, or if I were to be, if uh, there was, if I knew a flood was coming and it was like kind of at my doorstep, or if I knew I was going to be stranded on an island somewhere, there was, there was a couple things that we would run and grab. You ever think about that? Like, like for, like, you should probably grab your Bible. You should probably grab a toothbrush. That would be kind if anybody else is going to be with you. Um, but for Ashley and I, I think the first thing that we would grab is that we would go in and we would grab our photo albums. We're still like photo album people because they capture our memories and we're able to flip through them and show our kids. Um, we don't really care about too much else that's in our house, um, just our pictures, just, just the memories. Um, what would you grab if you knew your house was about to catch on fire, if you knew a flood was coming, and you knew how to get out and you had to get out of town? That's not rhetorical. Um, like, what, what, what would you grab? Jay? What would you grab? TJ, what would you guys grab out of your house? Grab birth certificates? That makes it easy for travel. If you could grab one thing and you're fleeing to the hills, what is it? Don't get shy. Running shoes. Yes, put them on. Put them on. What, 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 was that, what was that back there, Rob? Yeah, take your wife. Take your wife. Throw her on the, just run. What's that? Passport? I, saw, I thought somebody said basketball. I was like, man, you are seriously into sports. Take your passport with you. Yeah, your passport. Here, here, here's what Jesus is saying, guys. He's saying that the things that you think are important and valuable... The things that you would run back in and grab, forget it. Head to the hills. There, there's going to be nothing more valuable for you than getting you and your family out of the grips of this abomination of desolation. The best thing that you can do is you can go and you can run and you can go hide out in a cave for a little while. Go hide in the hills somewhere. There's history uh, in uh, Jewish wars in Rome and and wars that would happen after this, that, that's what happened, that people would flee to the hills, and that's how a lot of people were saved. Um, in Matthew, here Jesus, he references Daniel. Uh, Daniel is a prophecy of things that are going to be coming during the end. Anybody just love getting into Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar and um, all, all the eating the right foods and that sort of thing. You know, that's the easy stuff, guys. And then, and then you get past the first six chapters and then you get to chapter 7, you're like, what the heck just happened? Because it feels like everything just changed because Daniel starts getting these visions. Um, and you're like, whoa. Because there's, now you're talking about things that are to come. Images in our minds that we just don't understand. Times and dates that are confusing. Jesus mentions Daniel here. And Daniel, he talked about the abomination of desolation. You read Daniel, and, and that comes up at least three times. And, and here's the conclusion of uh, of six chapters of Daniel's prophecy. So we'll take these last 
few chapters and sum them up here. Daniel says, there's going to be a future ruler who's going to make a treaty with Israel. The terms of that treaty are going to be for a week, and a lot of scholars and commentators, they've said that that week isn't an actual week. It's actually a seven-year period, so you jump into Revelation and, and somehow all this plays out, and um, you, get a, you get a little better time scale. Says the ruler, the abomination of desolation, he's going to stop all sacrifices in the temple. The ruler is going to desecrate the temple by setting up a sacrilegious object. The desecration is going to continue for three and a half years until the judgment of God is given on the ruler and anybody who chooses to follow um, this abomination. How's that for summing up Daniel? Huh? This stuff's not easy. It's really not. It's a very difficult book, and this whole topic is very difficult. Um, but when we're talking about prophecy, we've got to understand that there are three different kinds of prophecy fulfillment. Um, and the first one is near-term prophecy. And that's prophecy that's already been fulfilled. It's been spoken, and you see it fulfilled in the scriptures, or you see it fulfilled after the scriptures. Uh, and so you're not waiting for anything to happen because it's already been done. And then there's future prophecy, that's prophecy that's going to be fulfilled at some point in the future. We're still waiting for that to happen. And then you have this already but not yet kind of prophecy. And that's prophecy that has been partially fulfilled or it's been completely fulfilled, but there's another fulfillment that looks just like it that's going to happen in the future or a prophecy that is going to be completed of parts of it that has already been done. Um, it's future looking and you're waiting for it, but you look back in the scriptures or you look back in history and you're like, oh, well, some of that's already happened, but yet you're still waiting. So that's why it's called already but not yet prophecy because it's partially fulfilled. Now, the problem with Daniel and with what Jesus is saying here he, is they're sitting on the side of the mountain with his disciples and who these disciples are probably freaking out, are they not? Because, like, they've been just kind of hanging out, and Jesus is all of a sudden, he's like, kind of turned the conversation, like, man, this is about to get really rough. Because he just told them that there's going to be an incredible amount of persecution that's coming your way. He's told them that the religious center, the religious hub of Jewish community, that the temple, where they come to meet with God, that it is about to be destroyed. So that, that's an upheaval in their world. Like, that's what they look to. So we met with God. And now he's telling them that there is going to be someone or something that's going to come inside of that temple, whether it's before it's destroyed or after it's destroyed and it's rebuilt, but they're going to be standing in the middle of that temple. And it's going to be so destructive and so painfully against God that it would be better for them to leave everything behind than to sit around and watch what happens. So how much of this, when we're talking about prophecy, gets fulfilled in their lifetime how much of what Jesus is talking about gets fulfilled later before um, uh, somewhere near their lifetime? How much of it is in the future? How much of what Jesus says here are we living through? Is it in our lifetime or are we waiting for a day that we'll never see um, with our own physical eyes? Uh, it's a lot of questions. There's a partial fulfillment of what Jesus says here in 167 BC. This is a century and a half before Jesus stepped onto the earth. So after Daniel gives this prophecy, there's a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, uh, he desecrates the temple. Anybody heard of Antiochus? Um, and what happened back in uh, 167? So he's desecrated the temple, and here's what happens. Um, he goes into the temple. He sets up an altar to this god named Zeus, um, who was big in, in the Roman pantheon. 
and he sacrifices a pig on the altar, which in the Jewish community, that's the lowest of low, that's the dirtiest of dirty. You just don't do that. You don't mess around uh, with, with pigs. And on top of that, he wasn't a priest, and so he had no business being in the temple to go in and make any sacrifice whatsoever. So completely desecrates the temple here. And then he kills tens of thousands of Jews, and he sells them into slavery, the ones who are living. Um, he issued a decree to the Jewish community that all the sacrifices to their God, who they've been following all these years, must stop. And now they've got to start sacrificing to these pagan gods that they have always been giving sacrifices to. And then on top of that, they had to eat pig meat as part of their diet, which was forbidden for them by God at the time. And so I think that we would look back in history at 167 and say, you know what? That is certainly an abomination of desolation, will we not? This is something that causes disgust and it causes hatred. But here's the deal. If that already happened, and Daniel's prophecy, if it already seems to be fulfilled, why does Jesus say about 200 years later that Daniel's prophecy hasn't yet been fulfilled? If it's not an already but not yet kind of a prophecy, there's been a fulfillment, but they're still waiting for something to be done. When, after Jesus said this, was this prophecy fulfilled, or has it yet to be fulfilled? Are we still waiting for it to be fulfilled? Is that going to happen while we're still alive? And another question that is always on your mind is, believers, are we going to be here when all this goes down? We'll talk a little bit about that next week. And so different people have come to different conclusions on uh, what this is referring to. Uh, and for us, as we go back to what I was talking about earlier, this is not something for us to fight about. But here's what I think is happening. I think Jesus, as we've been talking about already, that he has been preparing his disciples for what's about to come. Verses 1 through 13 that persecution that he's mentioned. He's saying that when I'm gone, there's going to be, um, continue to be severe persecution for you. But that's just how life's gonna be for believers. It's not gonna get any easier. It's actually gonna get quite harder. That's why I've told you that you're going to have to make a choice daily to take up your cross and follow me. It's not gonna be easy for you. It would be easy for you to just to give up and run away or to give in, to act like nothing's going on. But he said, daily, you're going to have to pick up your cross and you're going to have to follow me because it's going to get harder. The temple, it's going to be destroyed. Worship's no longer going to be happening in this epicenter of where God dwelt. But we know as we read the scriptures that Jesus is going to go to a cross. He's going to die. He's going to give up his life for the salvation of all who would believe in him. And then later, he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. You're going to read that in the book of Acts. And so wherever you go is where the Spirit of God goes. And so wherever the Spirit of God goes, that's where he is. And so he lets them know that just because the temple is going to be destroyed doesn't mean that you stop worship and that worship is ending. You still take me wherever you go. I'm going to be with you. But there's going to be a day in the future when the end's going to be coming. You don't know when that's going to be, but it's going to be signaled by this abomination that's going to happen in the temple. The persecution that believers face before he shows up, it's going to be nothing compared to what's coming. And he's going to establish this covenant with Israel for seven years, and then he's going to break it by doing something similar to what Antiochus Epiphanes did in the temple in 167 B.C. All of that is bad. <laughs> All of it is bad. It's scary stuff when we read it. But here's where I think the, the gold is here. Because Jesus doesn't really tell them how it's all going to go down. He doesn't tell them when it's going to happen. He doesn't tell them how it's going to go down. But what he does give them 
is instructions on what to do when it does go down. That's the instruction that he gives. It's the whole idea of being prepared, staying awake, being ready. In verse 21, he says there are going to be people who are running around and they're not prepared. They aren't ready. They haven't listened to what Jesus said. And they're going to be running around. They're going to be saying, look, here's the Christ. Here's the Messiah. Hey, look over there. There he is. Look at the signs. Look at the miracles that are being done. There are going to be people coming and trying to deceive. He's going to say, don't fall for it. You don't fall for it. And you encourage other people not to fall for it. Be on guard in verse 23. Be on guard. Remember all, all the be guard, stay awake stuff that we looked at last week? He's saying it here. Be on guard. I'm telling you right now, before all of this happens, be on guard. So, <laughs> we read this. And we're like, well, what do we do with this? What do you do with prophecy? What do you do with the abomination of desolation? There's a debate on when this is going to happen, when it's going to fall on the grand scale of the timeline. Is it, is it before? Is it during? Is it after? All these, all these kinds of things. But the question I think we need to ask is, as we started, are you ready? Are you ready for that? Are the people around you ready for that? Because talking about things like this, man, it could terrify I remember I was mowing and I was like, I don't even know what, I, I don't even know how to process what I'm hearing right now. But can I tell you, you don't have to be afraid of the abomination of desolation. You don't have to be afraid of the end times. You don't have to be afraid of not knowing. Um, Jesus came to give you life. If you don't know him, listen to me. Jesus came to give you life if you would trust in him. His gift is free to you. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. He stepped out of heaven from beside the Father and he stepped into this creation that he put his hands to and built so that you might have life, so that he might give everything. And the cost to you is free. You just simply follow him. Billy Graham, again, he just famously said over and over and over again, if you were to die tonight, if you were to die today, if you walk outside of these doors and if you're not a believer what would happen? Do you know? Are you ready for that? If it all happened right now would you be ready? So if you're not a believer, that's the call for you to dwell on to think about the, all this stuff that we've talked about. Prophecy is difficult to understand but the question is for you, if you're not yet a believer are you ready for that day? And you need to get ready by trusting yourself to Jesus. To trust in the, what he did on the cross for you, that it worked, and that you live your life for him. If you're a believer, here's what I say. Man, you, you need to be praying for the people around you who don't know Jesus. Here's a, if you want an action step, here, here's what I'd say. Take out a pen and a paper, take out your reminders on your phone, and put three spots on there. Three people that you know don't know Jesus. And you start praying for them. You start praying daily for them. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, as the Lord prompts them in your mind. That you might help them get ready through your prayer that their heart might be prompted to move towards Jesus. So you pray for those three. And then when they come to know Jesus and they start growing, you make a list of another three. And then you start praying for three more. And then another three. And then another three. And then another three. Until the whole world knows. Until the whole world is ready. Just think about here in our own community, 
here in Ashland or, or Greenwood or Springfield or Gretna or if we even have people watching online where, where you're watching from. Just think about the, the influence and the difference that we can make as we begin to pray for people. How God could begin to change our town, how we, he could begin to change our city. Three people that you're praying for that don't know Jesus to get ready. And so for you, believer, stay awake, stay alert, stay with Jesus. And if you're not a believer, talk to him. He wants to give you life. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for our time this morning. Thanks that we get to dive into some really difficult stuff. And you're forcing, you're forcing me to study harder. You're forcing me to dive in and to think about things that I haven't thought about and given uh, a lot of credence to over, over, over time. But I don't want to shy away from it because, because it's hard. And so will you use this in my own life to challenge me? For believers who are in the room, will you use it to challenge us to stay awake, to stay alert, to not fall asleep at the will and stay engaged with people and be praying for people? For my friends in here who don't know Jesus, God, I pray right now that they would do business with you as, as our worship team sings a song and before they walk out these doors, that they would know that they know that they know that they've trusted your son Jesus and what, he, that, and what he's done on the cross for them, that he takes their sin. So I pray that they would repent, they would lay it at the feet of the cross, and Father, that they would come to you. Gosh, would you just do that right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.